This podcast is brought to you by Proton Dealership IT, the cybersecurity and IT experts committed to keeping your dealership safe from cyber attacks. To learn more about how to better protect your dealership, go to info.protontex.com slash fish. That's I-N-F-O dot P-R-O-T-O-N-T-E-C-H-S dot com slash P-H-I-S-H. Welcome to Daily Drive for Wednesday, October 25th, 2023. I'm Jake Neer of Automotive News in Detroit. I'm in for Jamie Butters and Kellen Walker, who are both in transit to Chicago for our Automotive News Retail Forum. Today on the show, the UAW now wants at least 25% pay raises, Honda shelves plans to develop affordable EVs with GM, and Pendragon shareholders okay Lithia's offer to buy the UK retailer. Plus, an expert on the auto industry in China talks about how automakers there are reacting to the UAW strike. They are, put it mildly, astonished at what they're seeing. They can't get over it. Let's run through all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. The UAW is now seeking raises totaling at least 25% from the Detroit Three, according to people familiar with the talks. That's a significant reduction from its original demand of 40% as the two sides close in on resolving a major sticking point to reaching deals to end the union's six-week-old strike. The new figure has been relayed to some bargaining teams in recent days. It would result in top hourly wages of about $41.20 in 2027. Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis have each proposed 23% raises, which would put top earners at about $40.39. The difference between the union's demand and what the companies have offered is roughly $3,100 per worker, over the entirety of the contract, although one source cautioned that the target could shift at any or all of the companies as talks continue. Honda is halting plans to jointly develop affordable electric vehicles with General Motors. CEO Toshihiro Mibe says the decision is due to a changing business environment. The carmakers agreed in April 2022 to create a new architecture based on GM's Ultium EV battery that will be used primarily for small crossover sport utility vehicles, with plans to roll out the first models in North America in 2027. GM earlier this week warned that its EV production plans have become more uncertain, though not because of the UAW strike. The company is no longer saying it expects to build a total of 400,000 EVs in North America by mid-2024. CFO Paul Jacobson said the reason is, quote, just to make sure that we're balancing production to demand. More bad news for GM, the California Department of Motor Vehicles is suspending permits held by its robotaxi unit Cruise effective immediately. It's a major blow to the company's self-driving ambitions. DMV officials say the vehicles are, quote, not safe for the public's operation. And officials cited a provision which states that permits can be suspended if a manufacturer has misrepresented any information related to safety of the autonomous technology. They say Cruz withheld a key portion of video following a recent pedestrian strike in San Francisco. The DMV says there's no timetable for the permits to be reinstated. The department says it has outlined the necessary steps for crews to complete before applying for reinstatement, 
but it did not elaborate on what those steps entailed. And the Pendragon saga looks like it's getting closer to a resolution. The major UK retail chain says its shareholders overwhelmingly approved Lithium Motors' offer to buy the company. Only about 1% of Pendragon owners voted against Lithia's proposal to buy its 160 stores, its fleet business, and a piece of its dealership management system, Pinewood, for $481 million. The news comes as Lithia reported a third-quarter revenue record. It rose 13% to $8.3 billion, but the U.S. retail giant also saw quarterly net income fall 20% from a year earlier as vehicle sales rose but gross profit fell. Other publicly traded U.S. retailers also reported third-quarter earnings today. Penske Automotive posted a drop in net income. It fell 23% from the same period in 2022 to about $264 million. Revenue improved 7.5% to $7.45 billion. With 10 fewer franchise stores in its network, Asbury Automotive's third-quarter net income fell 17% from a year earlier to $169 million, while revenue dropped 5.2% to $3.7 billion. But Asbury is about to add 20 locations and $3.2 billion in annual revenue with the acquisition of Jim Coons Automotive, which it announced in the third quarter. The $1.2 billion deal is expected to close either this quarter or the first quarter of 2024. And after divesting of five dealerships in the third quarter, Group 1 Automotive reported lower net income but record revenue today. Net income for the Houston dealership group fell almost 17% to $164 million in the quarter. Revenue rose sharply, increasing 13% to $4.7 billion. And those are today's headlines. Coming up, we'll hear from Michael Dunn of Dunn Insights about how the auto industry in China is reacting to the UAW strike here in the U.S. That's next on Daily Drive. Email phishing happens every day. Cyber criminals are out to trick your employees and coworkers into handing over valuable information that can compromise your dealership through impersonations, fake giveaways, and urgent emergency requests. All it takes is one click to shut down everything. Phishing is the leading cybersecurity concern for dealerships. Without the proper training and protection, your business is left vulnerable to ever-evolving attacks. One day you click an email, And the next thing you know, you get a call from your IT guy. Your email has been compromised, shut down immediately. Stories of attacks and their consequences come flooding in every day. And all it takes is one click to shut down your dealership. You have enough to worry about as it is. Don't add getting hacked to the list. Let Proton Dealership IT help ensure you are fully protected and learn how at info.protontext.com slash fish. That's I-N-F-O dot P-R-O-T-O-N-T-E-C-H-S dot com slash P-H-I-S-H. The auto industry's shift to carbon neutrality is here and it's accelerating. But is it enough? This is a moral imperative, an economic imperative, a moment of peril, but also a moment of extraordinary possibilities. No more hesitancy. No more excuses. 
no more waiting for the others to move first. There is simply no more time for that. Driving to Zero is a new podcast series from Automotive News that looks at the auto industry's roadmap to carbon neutrality. We take a big picture look at the environmental, political, and social trends pushing the move toward a greener future. And we pull back the curtain on how these decisions are being made at the highest levels. I said, you know, the, the headline that you need is is GM believes in an all-electric future. And I think Dan Ammon and Mary Barra pretty much said the same thing, which is, is like, but, but we, we don't. General Motors, we believe in an all-electric future. I'm Jake Neer. Join me and Automotive News Executive Editor Jamie Butters on Driving to Zero, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Jake Neer. We're almost six weeks into the UAW strike against the Detroit 3 automakers, and the economic ripples are growing every day. They extend all the way across the Pacific Ocean to where many established and emerging competitors are watching carefully. Michael Dunn is an expert on the auto industry in China, and he's the CEO of Dunn Insights. He spoke with Jamie about how Chinese automakers are reacting to the strike and what it could mean for their hopes to extend their reach into the North American market. Michael Dunn, welcome back to Daily Drive. Hey, Jamie. Great to be with you today. So, of course, you know, here in Detroit, in the Midwest, and most of America even, uh, we've really been going through this UAW strike uh, now a month and almost 10 days, something like that. You know, you are a, a renowned expert on the Chinese auto industry. And I'm wondering, you know, from your perspective, how do, how do the Chinese companies look at this UAW strike? Do they see it as the, the workers standing up against the greedy corporate rich? You know what, Jamie, I've been talking to several Chinese automakers and suppliers in the last couple of weeks, and they are, to put it mildly, astonished at what they're seeing. They can't get over it. How can this possibly be? The gap in wages between China and the United States are already enormous. The Chinese are racing to cut their costs even more through automation. And they look across the ocean, they see UAW asking for higher wages. And they think to themselves, you know, the Chinese never give away their hand. They would never laugh out loud, but quietly they're smirking and thinking, whoa, this is just tremendous for us. <laughs> so we heard, you know, Bill Ford last week saying, you know, Toyota, Honda and Tesla basically you know, as sort of symbols of the companies that the Detroit three compete with, you know, have to be loving this strike because, of course, in the short term, uh, the Detroit companies are kind of fighting with one arm tied behind their back. And then going forward, it's like they'll be running with ankle weights. They're going to have higher labor costs by far than anyone else in the continent. Is that kind of uh, how the Chinese see it? They see Detroit effectively weakening themselves in global competition? Uh, absolutely. You know, what? They let's be honest, Detroit makes almost all of its profits these days off of trucks in North America. If you look around the world, they've essentially stepped back from almost every other market, Europe, Africa, South America, only in Asia, most markets, except for China, and even in China, their sales are down by half from what they were at their peak. So we're on this small little island called North American Trucks, making large profits, but it's a tiny corner of the global auto industry. The Chinese are expanding globally at a time when we're shrinking into a small corner. 
and then we're trying to divvy up the goods, the profits that come from those trucks. And when you say trucks, we mean pickups and SUVs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're absolutely right. That's that's where the profits come from for the Detroit Three, and they've made uh, really good profits in recent years. But it has been interesting that you know, as the EV market here is still kind of in its early days. I mean, we really have a pretty incomplete lineup of vehicles. A lot of companies are still on sort of their first generation. The Chinese EV market is much more advanced. And companies seem to really be driving down prices uh, rapidly. Incredible how low they can go. They've just, BYD just introduced the Seagull in Germany at the auto show there. Starts at $11,000. <laughs> I mean, wow. that's just, that's unbelievable. And they have you can't even get other... a used car in America for $11,000. No, it's you can't. It's very hard to find a decent one. No, you can't. So imagine the Chinese looking at their low cost base and saying, we already make more electrics than the rest of the world combined, and we do it at low cost, and we have our own batteries and battery supply chains. Boy, how would we like to crack the U.S. market where we can have profits, profits <laughs> and more profits? That's what they're looking at. So, I mean, they're not really in this market uh, yet. Are they eyeing it and just seeing... Um, okay, you know, the American vehicles are getting so expensive, you know, we can come in even against a 25% tariff and offer a vehicle that's so much cheaper, we can gain share and make money in the face of that? Or are they just hoping, hey, we're going to be ready so that if and when the tariffs come down, we can really jump into the market? Short term, they're not intimidated by that 25% duty. If you do the math, say their cost is $20,000, you add another 5,000 on top of that 25,000, who cares? They're still able to make a profit and still able to penetrate the market. Their bigger concern is that the political atmosphere right now, US-China relations are at their worst in 50 years. So they're not too worried about the tariffs. Most of them talk about 2025, 2026, when they hope that relations between the U.S. and China are calmer and smoother than they are today. Why that time frame? What's the what's magic about that time frame? A couple of things. One is they're looking at the next election. Which way will that swing? And then they're hopeful that hey, you know, maybe the Americans get up get upset about stuff in the short term, but maybe they'll have a short memory and welcome us in a couple more years. Uh, that may be wishful thinking, but at least that's what they're doing. Now, Jamie, I want to emphasize that the Chinese companies are actually here on the ground in the United States. For example, BYD has a couple hundred people working in Pasadena. NEO just doubled the size of their offices in San Jose. SAIC is looking. So they're all poised to enter the U.S. market at the right time. It's just that right now, what did they say in Chinese expression is, we'll let the bullets fly first, keep our head low and then move in when the time is right. Whether tensions between U.S. and China come down significantly in 25, 26, 27, we know they're not going to come down before the election. There's just no reason to think that. Both parties seem very adamant still about the rivalry with China. And I mean, I guess the Biden administration is trying to make a little bit of uh Little bit friendlier yes. relations, but but mm-hmm. not on the uh, not to the extent of wanting to open up more trade yet. That's right. Here's what I'm looking at, Jamie. These days is watch the Chinese move into Mexico. Now it's already China is the number one supplier of vehicles to the Mexican market. Can you imagine that? Built-in China cars are coming across and supplying Mexico. 
Next step, they'll put plants there. BYD, SAIC, Great Wall will put plants there to take advantage of the USMCA and probably manufacture in Mexico for export to the US. That would be the way, one way to get around those tariffs. You know, I've been in uh, Latin America a couple of times in the last few years, and it is just stunning to see all these Chinese vehicles. You know, you <laughs> see the Hyundais and you see the Chevys, but you see just as many, you know, Cherries and uh, Geely's. And it's just striking. You know, for so many years, we only saw them in China. And now you see them everywhere except the U.S. No, you're exactly right, Jamie. What Forever it was what happened in China stayed in China, and we're fine with that. Today, you know, this year, China will, ex will surpass Japan to become the world's number one exporter of cars. They're exporting to over 100 countries, virtually every other country except the United States and maybe Canada. Uh, where else? Um, North No, they're going to North Korea too. So right. <laughs> they've, they've got the map basically covered except for North America. And that can be misleading for your average American. Chinese cars, no, can't be serious. Don't see them on American roads yet. But we cannot be complacent or naive. They're, they're, they're strong and they're formidable. And they have the U.S. market in their sights for sure. I haven't been in a BYD in ages, uh, but I hear a lot about them as being you know, maybe not as well built or as well handling as, you know, a, a German luxury car or even an American, you know, pickup, but they're pretty competent as a vehicle and fantastic as a delivery of technology experience. 100%. If you want to place it in context, I'd say Hyundai five, six years ago. So, for quality, the drive quality. ride quality and all that. Yeah, that's right. It isn't as refined as, you know, today's Hyundai, but man, they've come a long way in a short period of time. So you're getting enormous value for money. And gosh, the customers I talked to in Australia and England, Germany, even they they say this is a quality vehicle, good vehicle. So BYD uh, has that approach, very tech forward uh how about the other brands? Are they all, do they all kind of fit in that same space, uh, cheap but full of technology? More or less. You know, the Chinese don't have a deep, long history of a car culture where we get kicks out of how fast we accelerate, how we handle corners, braking, etc. For the Chinese, it's much more a tech experience. They get inside the car to move from point A to point B, but much of their experience is defined by that interaction with that screen navigation, entertainment, infotainment, karaoke, things like that. This is where the Chinese are really good. And as they go global, the big challenge will be, will they be able to duplicate that excellence at home for customers who are not Chinese? That's one area that still needs to be proven out. I think one other issue, you know, for American consumers, people in the industry, policymakers, is getting a handle on sort of how much government support the Chinese automakers get at home. Uh, how do you look at that? Is it is it an unfair advantage that they're taking the greatest advantage of they can, <laughs> or is it some, you know is that something that maybe justifies the tariffs? Uh, how how should we unpack all that? Gosh, that's such a great question, Jamie. Absolutely, they get Chinese manufacturer gets all sorts of support from the local, provincial and national governments in the form of, for example, low interest loans, 
For example, the energy supplied to your factories is discounted. For example, if you export something, you're going to get a subsidy back. There are no end to the measures the Chinese nation is taking to become the powerhouse automotive country in the world. There's no end to it. It's like, this is a campaign. This is going to happen. What do we need to make sure that we win? And up against that, as in the West, we say, well, how, how on earth do we compete with that? That incredibly low cost structure that is, that's in part low wages, in part high automation, in part being very efficient. You know, Tesla does very well in China. But on top of it, you have the full force of government saying, how do we facilitate your rise globally? And uh, if you just look at the costs, it's really hard. You know, if an alien came down to Earth today, Jamie, and said, where should we manufacture our cars? Oh, this country over here makes it extremely easy and efficient and scale. It's all there. So how to compete? This is a dilemma for Western nations today, right now. Michael Dunn, CEO of Dunn Insights. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today. Thank you very much, Jamie. We'll see you soon in Detroit. That's Daily Drive for today. I'm Jake Neer, and for Jamie Butters and Kellen Walker. Thanks to automotive news journalists Michael Martinez, Pete Bigelow, John Hutter, Gail Howe, and Paige Hodder for their reporting for today's podcast. You can get the latest news on the UAW strike, retail earnings, and everything happening in the auto industry at autonews.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, remember to like, leave a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode.